Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. My essay this week is called, We Must Obey God Rather Than Men, with gratitude to Morgan Svengarai, and is based upon the lectionary readings for Sunday, April the 15th, 2007. On Sunday, March 11th, Morgan Svengarai, former presidential candidate and founder of Zimbabwe's Movement for Democratic Change, drove to the Highfield suburb of Zimbabwe's capital of Harare in order to attend a prayer meeting that local churches had organized. He knew that Robert Mugabe, Zimbabwe's 83-year-old dictator and the country's only ruler since independence in 1980, had brutally repressed all forms of political dissent, but he hoped that they might fly under the radar. They had come, he said, quote, to seek divine intervention, end quote, to pray for an end to 27 years of Mugabe's autocratic rule that has plunged Zimbabwe into economic freefall, electoral fraud, chaotic land reform, massive starvation, political terror, and egregious abuses of human rights. Three million citizens, a quarter of the population, have left the country. Life expectancy at birth is barely 40 years, and a quarter of the population has HIV-AIDS. In the Highfield suburb, riot police prevented people from entering the prayer venue. When Svengarai saw that police far outnumbered the prayer protesters and that ordinary citizens were in grave danger, he canceled the event and returned to his home in Straphaven, 12 miles away. Besides, he thought, being committed to peaceful protest and nonviolence, he wanted to avoid a confrontation. Later that day, when Svengarai returned to the police station, to see some 40 of his supporters who had been jailed, police savagely beat him and his driver. He lost consciousness and awoke in what he calls, quote, a crowded, hot, filthy, and roach-infested police cell, end quote. But he remained defiant rather than deterred. Quote, far from killing my spirit, the scars they brutally inflicted on me have re-energized me. I seek no martyrdom, I only seek a new dispensation in my country in which citizens live freely, in prosperity, and not in perpetual fear of their own rulers." Svangarai personifies the truth of two verses from this week's lectionary. First, from Acts 5.29, that we must obey God rather than men, and number two from Revelation 1 verse 5, that Jesus is the ruler of the kings of the earth. If Jesus is king and lord over all the earthly rulers, then the Roman Caesar was decidedly not lord at all, despite its claim that the Roman state was divine and its cult of imperial worship. These two readings remind us that Christians should never confuse the relative claim to render to Caesar what is Caesar's 
with the absolute and unconditional claim to render to God what is God's. Matthew 22, verse 21. As much as is possible, we honor the king, but as Svengarai so bravely demonstrated, is God alone whom we fear. 1 Peter 2.17 Svengarai is in good company. He follows in the footsteps of many Christians, both famous and anonymous, who've challenged state power that has terrorized people and propagated a rhetoric to legitimize it. Here are three more examples of Christians who obeyed God rather than men. Dachau, the Dachau prison camp, was opened in March of 1933. Not long after, in 1934, Germany's so-called Confessing Church published the Barman Declaration to repudiate the nationalism and anti-Semitism of what was called the German Christian Movement and its appeal to the Bible to support the Nazis. In one of the key statements of the Barman Declaration, we read, quote, We reject the false doctrine that beyond its limited commission, the state should and could become the sole and total order of human life and so fulfill the vocation of the church as well. End quote. Capitulating to the Nazi status quo was unacceptable to Germany's confessing church. At the instigation of Frank Chicain, a black Pentecostal pastor, in 1985, more than 150 clergy from 20 denominations drafted what was called the Kairos document to protest South African apartheid. It disavowed what it called, quote-unquote, state theology, simply the theological justification of the status quo with its racism, capitalism, and totalitarianism. State theology, state theology blesses injustice, canonizes the will of the powerful, and reduces the poor to passivity, obedience, and apathy, end quote. The Kairos document also critiqued what it called church theology, which in a, quote, limited and guarded and cautious way was superficially critical of apartheid. Church theology's timid criticism of the state, moreover, was defective because it was based upon an individualistic and privatistic piety that ignored a rigorous analysis of the South African social and political dynamics. In a third example, in July 2003, the Dominican nuns Ardeth Platt, Carol Gilbert, and Jackie Hudson Members of a peace community in Baltimore called Jonah House that was founded by the dissident priest Daniel Berrigan were each sentenced to 34 months in federal prison for sabotaging the national defense and damaging government property. The three nuns had protested nuclear weapons by smearing a cross on a Minuteman silo with their own blood and pounding on it with hammers. 
Acts 5.29, we must obey God rather than men, is the perfect text for this Sunday, April 15th, when the world commemorates Holocaust Memorial Day, Yom HaShoah, to honor the memory of the six million Jews who were systematically exterminated by the Nazis in over 35 countries, and with them an additional three to four million people whom the Nazis deemed undesirable and inferior enemies of the state. Gays, gypsies, Jehovah's Witnesses, Soviet prisoners of war, Slavic people, the physically and mentally disabled, and political dissidents of every sort. Holocaust Memorial Day also provides an opportunity to contemplate the other holocausts of the last hundred years. A million Armenians under the Turks, two million Cambodians under the Khmer Rouge and Pol Pot, Kurds under Saddam Hussein, Muslims, Croats, and ethnic Albanians under the Serbs, nearly a million ethnic Tutsis and moderate Hutus by extremist Hutus in Rwanda, and now in Darfur, the Fur, Zaghawa, and Masalite peoples by the Janjaweed supported by Sudan's government. In light of these atrocities of the past hundred years, the words of Acts 5.29 assume special importance. To obey God rather than man, wrote the Yale historian Yaroslav Pelikan, quote, and to protest that human laws of the state and nation cannot contravene the divine law of the sovereign God has been the unanimous teaching of both the Old and New Testament, as well as the subsequent history of the church since the earliest centuries. Moses before Pharaoh, Elijah before Ahab and Jezebel, John the Baptist before Herod, Paul before the Sanhedrin and before Festus, and Ambrose before Theodosius, Theodore of Studios before Constantine VI, Luther before Charles V at the Diet of Worms, and Martin Luther King before the power structure of white America. All these expressed this obligation to appeal from the abuse of political power by human authorities to the ultimate sovereignty of God." End quote. Likewise, I might add, Morgan Tsvangarai of Zimbabwe. Morgan Tsvangarai, God bless and keep you in Zimbabwe. Far from forgotten, you are an inspiration to the church and to the entire world. And now for further reflection. Have you ever obeyed God rather than men? Number two, what contemporary applications of Acts 5.29 can you think of? Number three, to what extent should a Christian support the laws and policies of its nation? And for further reflection, 
See the Pulitzer Prize-winning book by Samantha Power, A Problem from Hell, America in the Age of Genocide. For books this week, I review Carl Sagan, The Varieties of Scientific Experience, A Personal View of the Search for God, edited by Anne Druran, New York, Penguin Press, 2006, 284 pages. In 1985, Carl Sagan delivered the Gifford Lectures on Natural Theology at the University of Glasgow to overflow audiences. In them, he presented what he called the quote-unquote definitive statement of his personal views on the relationship between science and religion and the nature of the sacred. For 20 years, these lectures lay hidden in a drawer until his wife, Andrewan, rediscovered them and published them in the present book. Her choice of the book's title, of course, is a play on William James's own Gifford lectures, which were later published as The Varieties of Religious Experience. Sagan's nine chapters traverse a broad and diverse intellectual terrain, from the size of the cosmos, the nature of science, extraterrestrial intelligence, UFOs, proofs for the existence of God, environmentalism, and the threat of nuclear war. Sagan doesn't believe that the proofs for God are very impressive, nor that there is any definitive evidence for the existence of God. But like Einstein and Spinoza, whom he continually quotes, he acknowledges a reverence for the sum total of the laws of nature. In interviews, he has described himself as an agnostic rather than as an atheist. In whatever the case, it's clear that he is far from any traditional notion of God or the afterlife. Central to Sagan's book is an aggressive rebuttal of what he calls anthropocentric arrogance. Given the unimaginably vast size and complexity of the universe, or perhaps universes, humanity should not claim any privileged status, either in space or in time. Sagan thus wants to demote humanity from any central position in the universe to a mere incidental status. But if religious believers should not draw any positive conclusions about God or humanity based upon nature, it seems to me contradictory for Sagan to draw negative conclusions. At one point, he seems to admit this, as when he writes that, quote, there is no particular theological conclusion that comes out of an exercise such as the one we have just gone through. End quote. But at other times, he admits when his opinions are no more than speculations or even wild guesses. Many of Sagan's descriptions of religion stoop to shallow caricatures. For example, quote, What about the idea that we are all made in God's image? Is that also a failure of the imagination? Do we, for example, imagine that God has nostrils and breathes? 
If so, what does he breathe? Air? Where is the air? Air with oxygen in it? No other planet in the solar system has oxygen except the Earth. Why restrict God to very few places? Why would he need nostrils? What about a navel? What about hair? End quote. Or again, is it really, quote, a perfectly typical tenet of modern religion to believe that if you only have enough faith, you can levitate? End quote. Straw man arguments like this are demeaning for one of the most brilliant intellectuals of our time. Furthermore, when Sagan discusses proofs for the existence of God, the nature of miracles, the problem of evil, and the like, he never interacts with serious Christian literature on the subject by philosophers such as Richard Swinburne of Oxford and Alvin Plantinga of Notre Dame. Nor does he interact with his own scientist colleagues who are believers, such as Francis Collins, John Polkinghorne, and Owen Gingrich. The result is a brilliant version of science pitted against a ridiculous presentation of religion. And you can imagine who wins. A final and important area that Sagan does not address is the possibility of knowledge that the scientific method cannot verify like aesthetics or ethics. For example, what might a Mozart symphony tell us about the nature of ultimate reality? Or what are the implications for science, for example, that it can build a nuclear bomb, but not tell us whether, when, or under what conditions to use a nuclear bomb? As many people have said in conclusion, the is of scientific description does not itself address matters of ought. Carl Sagan, The Varieties of Scientific Experience, A Personal View of the Search for God. For film this week, I review a Brazilian film called Man of the Year from the year 2003. At the beginning of this film, Michael could never imagine killing a person. By the end of the film, he couldn't not kill. The film consists largely of Michael's grotesque transformation. He first killed an acquaintance in a fit of rage after being taunted for dyeing his hair blonde. Racked with guilt and fear, he was shocked to find that the locals in Rio de Janeiro thanked him for his vigilante justice and for keeping the so-called trash off the street. Then a dentist employed him to take revenge for raping his daughter. And before the film is over, Michael murders his own girlfriend, has an album full of newspaper clippings about the people he killed, a thriving so-called protection agency a massive mansion, and more money than he could spend. Along the way, he refuses every exit ramp that he might have led him down a better path. Marriage, the birth of his daughter, the prick of conscience, the Christian conversion of his second girlfriend, and a close brush with the otherwise corrupt police. At one point, he even vowed, quote, I want to change and become a normal person, end quote. But it was not to be. 
clearly in this film, violence begat more violence. From Brazil, the film Man of the Year. And finally, for poetry this week, one of my all-time favorite poems, which is perfect for spring. It's called The Revival by Henry Vaughan. Henry Vaughan was a Welsh poet and physician who lived from 1621 to 1695. Henry Vaughan, The Revival. Unfold, unfold, take in his light who makes thy cares more short than night. The joys which with his day star rise, he deals to all but drowsy eyes. And what the men of this world miss, some drops in dews of future bliss. Hark how his winds have changed their note, and with warm whispers call thee out. The frosts are past, the storms are gone, and backward life at last comes on. The lofty groves in express joys reply unto the turtle's voice, and here in dust and dirt, oh, here the lilies of his love appear. Henry Vaughan, The Revival. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for Sunday, April the 15th, 2007. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.